this is the thing that they talk about that I've never experienced before. Uh, it was great, uh, but had a good time, and uh, so hope you had a great afternoon tonight. A little bit different schedule tonight, uh, just because of the weather interruption last weekend. Uh, we're just jumping right in. Everybody's kind of in their own place tonight, starting out from get-go. Uh, but uh, we did have a couple handouts tonight for you, and if you would like to grab one of these, um, I know that I think we printed off 25 because we were right at 25, 26 spiritual gift tests or uh, um, folks in our growth group that had registered. And I think we're out of these. This is the last one that we have, um, but we do. We can run up and print a few more. Uh, tonight right after if need be uh, but we do have these spiritual gift tests that we'll give out tonight and uh, I'll kind of walk through it real quickly and then we will um, if you didn't get one if you did not get one of these kind of raise your hand for me uh, that way all right one two three uh, four five all right uh, so we need to we need to print out you got one of these okay so we'll need to print up about 10 or 10 or 12 more of these uh, but we can get those right afterwards uh, let me explain kind of what you you got it thanks sir um, let me explain what this is, and then we'll dive into our material. If you have your Bible, you can go ahead and turn uh, to uh, Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4 for tonight. Um, my children give me candy, and it goes in pockets. Uh, my youngest daughter this morning uh, walked up to me super excited, and she had her tongue stuck through a hole where her tooth should have been. And she said, Dad, I lost a tooth during church today. Like, she was so excited. And I was like, well, where is the tooth? And so she had somebody run and grab it and bring it to me. It was wonderful. Uh, but the things that our children do at church. Uh, so here's the uh, explanation. It basically explains what the spiritual gifts are. Uh, what a spiritual gift is, when we receive Christ as our personal Savior, uh, everyone is given spiritual gifts. Uh, God as we've discussed, uh, gives every believer a specific spiritual gift. And some people have more than one. Uh, but what they are, and then you see the seven that we've discussed listed. And then there is a test on page two, three, and four. And then there is a scoring key uh, on the very back that you just kind of list out uh, which ones you scored high, you know, where, where you were, one, two, three, four, five. Uh, basically, it has on a scale of one to five, I'll just read a couple. Uh, I'm always looking for practical ways to help. You circle one, two, three, four, five. Uh, I enjoy public speaking and teaching. One, two, three, four, five. Um, so all of these different things. I am a take charge person who can usually bring order out of chaos. <laughs> all right. Uh, so all of those things. Um, and then it has 42 questions, and you'll just kind of fill out which one, uh, one least, five most, and then you'll fill in the blanks at the bottom and then tally up your score, and it'll tell you for fairly close to what your spiritual gift should be. So you can take that, uh, you can fill it out, uh, preferably not while the growth group is going on tonight, uh, but it'll kind of give you at least an idea of what you can expect your spiritual uh, gift to be, and uh, it'd be interesting to see uh, how close you score to what you may think your spiritual gift is uh, at the present moment, okay? Uh, how many of you already know what your spiritual gift is, just out of curiosity? All right, a few of you. How many of you think you know what your spiritual gift is? All right, good, good, good. Well, that'll give you a little bit of confirmation and kind of let you know. Um, and what we try to do, like we did this morning with the service card, uh, we try to pair people up. And even in new members packets, we tell people, hey, here's a, um, on the card, we say, what is your spiritual gift? Do you know what your spiritual gift is? Uh, we have spiritual gift tests that's in the bags. Uh, and if you've joined in the last couple of years, you know, but um, we'll have a spiritual gift test in the bag because we like to pair people up in service opportunities uh, that allows you to serve out of your spiritual gift. Uh, so if that can be a help and if we can help point you in the right direction uh, or point you to a ministry where if you said, hey, my uh, spiritual gift is mercy or my spiritual gift is administration, uh, where can I serve that allows me to be able to serve out of that gift? We'll give you some recommendations. Uh, so if that helps you. Ephesians chapter 4. We spent the last five sessions, first five sessions, dealing with the seven motivational gifts. And tonight we're going to deal with the gifts to the local church. Um, and then there are four of them. And then we're going to spend the last of, this was going to be uh, last week's material. 
And then the last few minutes of our class, uh, of our group tonight, uh, we're going to deal specifically with the spiritual gift of tongues. And we'll talk about uh, the cessation of that uh, spiritual gift, uh, why it ceased, why we believe that it has ceased. Uh, so we'll speak out of that tonight uh, from 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Uh, we'll go there tonight for the rest of our group. Uh, so if you're taking notes tonight, you can write down number one, the positions. The positions. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse number 11. We know that there are uh, motivational gifts given to the local church in Romans chapter 12, mentioned again in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Uh, then we see the sign gifts mentioned in chapter 12 through 14. And Paul doesn't necessarily mention gifts in Ephesians, but he talks about gifted leaders in uh, the church and the outcome that would be desired because of the correct usage of those gifts. Uh, so he talks about the positions, four positions of leadership in Ephesians chapter 4, um, verses 11 through 12, and then he talks about the outcome. Uh, John, you've got some of those. If you have a, uh, if you did not get one of the spiritual gift tests, if you'll raise your hand real quick, uh, John will get these, John and Jamie will get these out to you. And uh, if we run out again, we'll print more. Uh, so the copy machine loves to print for us. Um, but they'll, they'll hand them. That's right, it's gifted. It's gifted. Uh, so, uh, but anyway, uh, the positions. Let's look at the first one. Ephesians chapter 4. Let's read the text and then we'll kind of go through. Um, verse 11. It says, And he gave, and it's talking about the Lord. Uh, the context is talking about Jesus. He gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. For the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That we henceforth be no more children, tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine, by the slight of men, and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. But speaking the truth in love, may grow up into him in all things, which is, is the head, even Christ." From whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working and the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. The position. What are the positions? There are four of them mentioned here. Number one is the apostles. The apostles. The word apostle means one who is sent with a commission. One who is sent with a commission. Jesus had tons of followers. We talked about that this morning. Uh, thousands of people who claimed to follow Christ. But he only had 12 apostles. These are the men who helped lay the foundation of the church. We see them mentioned in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 19 and 20. It says, Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, verse 20, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. But there's something unique about, if you've ever built a house or maybe you've seen a house being constructed, something unique about a foundation. Once the house has been built on top of the foundation, there's really no further need to see the foundation. It typically gets buried and you never see it again. You know that it's there because there is an established house that's built on top of something, but you don't need to see the foundation anymore. It's covered up and it's essentially out of sight and out of mind. Now, the, the truth of the apostles is that they are the foundation of the church. Uh, they were established, God used them to help establish the first New Testament church in the book of Acts. But after that point, there's really no need for the apostles because the church took off so well. You think about Acts chapter number 2, they had 3,000 converts on the day of Pentecost, uh, Paul, uh, Peter gets up and preaches the message. We talked about it this morning uh, from Acts chapter 4. And so they had all of these converts and the church was exploding. Uh, 3,000 converts on its first day uh, really in existence. So we have an, an apostolic ministry that we've talked a little bit about in our spiritual gifts. But you don't have apostles today uh, in the local church. Uh, we've been called into apostolic ministry. We talk about uh, the name, one who has been sent with a commission. We would say that applies to us. You think about uh, Matthew chapter 28, Mark chapter 16, the great commission. We've been sent by the Lord Jesus Christ with a commission, but we're not apostles. We have an apostolic mission, but not with the title of apostles. Why not? Because in Acts chapter 1, 
verse 22, there is a very specific guideline that has to be accomplished that you have to check the box if you're going to be labeled an apostle. Acts 1.22 says, Beginning from the baptism of John, unto that same day that he was taken up from us, must one be ordained to be a witness with us of his resurrection. If you're going to say that you're an apostle, you have to have seen the resurrected Savior. Now, just newsflash, none of us have seen him with these eyes. None of us. So we cannot claim to be apostles. We can say that we have an apostolic mission, as we've already mentioned, but we're not apostles. And if you see someone or maybe you've been introduced to someone in your life who calls themselves an apostle, I would lovingly, respectfully try and argue that they don't have a clear understanding of what the word means. Uh, They don't understand what that title brings with it. That would just be my opinion. But there are distinct rules. They had to have seen Jesus in his resurrected body. Remember, even Paul met the Lord on the Damascus Road in Acts chapter number 9. We call him the Apostle Paul. Uh, So uh, there are three main roles for the apostles. All right, Number one, they were to lay the foundation of the church, which we see that in Jesus' told them in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18, upon this rock I'll build my church, speaking to the apostles, the disciples. Uh, they would be uh, lay the foundation of the church. Number two, they would receive, declare, and write God's word. Many of the disciples helped write the New Testament. So we've seen that. And then number three, they would give confirmation of that word through signs, wonders, and miracles. Signs, wonders, and miracles. Jesus told the people in Mark chapter 16 as he was getting ready to ascend back up to heaven what that would look like. Kind of some of the signs and wonders of those apostles. Mark 16 verse 17 and 18. And these signs shall follow them that believe. In my name shall they cast out devils. Most of the disciples had already checked that box. They had done that uh, in Jesus' ministry. They shall speak with new tongues. There's the sign gift we'll talk about in a minute. They shall take up serpents. That's not going to happen today. Uh, And if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. You think about These are some pretty hefty roles. These are some pretty hefty things that these apostles could do uh, that God had gifted them with. They shall lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. But what's interesting is these men weren't replaced. You think about a church today, uh, if a pastor gets up, And uh, God willing, that won't happen here. Uh, But uh, a pastor gets up and says, you know what? I feel like God is calling me somewhere else, and uh, I'm going to resign, and the pastor leaves. The church would then form a pulpit committee, which Crossroads did that 10 years ago uh, this summer. But um, the, the church would assign a pulpit committee, and then they would go and search out a new candidate, bring them in. Church would vote on them to become the next person. You can't do that with apostles. Because there's no one living today who has seen Jesus in his resurrected form. So once the apostles all died out, there were no replacements. There was no one else to fill that role. Uh, There were 13 men who fit the bill. But we typically ascribe only 12 of them because the disciples chose Matthias in Acts chapter 1. And remember Paul said that he was an apostle born out of due time. Uh, so 12 apostles, so those are, that's the first gift given to the first church in uh, Ephesians chapter 4. The second group is, are the prophets. All right, so we have apostles. He gave some apostles and some prophets. prophets. Now, we've already talked about the gift of prophecy in Romans chapter 12. And the gift is the exact same as this role. Someone who proclaims the word of God without apology. Someone who proclaims the word of God without apology. And remember the time period. They did not have completed Bibles. They did not have the entire canon of Scripture. They had to rely on, the church had to rely on men who would receive the message from God and would share it with the people of God. And the message could be validated either by Old Testament texts or by the teaching of Jesus himself. And that's we see the New Testament. A New Testament speaks into the Old Testament, validates Old Testament scripture and text, and then it's confirming and validating the teaching of Jesus. It's repeating what Jesus taught. So we see the prophets. And we might say today in our vernacular that scripture interprets scripture. 
That's how we know if we read a verse of Scripture and say, man, I, that really doesn't make sense. I, I don't really know. I'm going to search that thought out and see if I can get Scripture to validate this thought, this principle. I think about, um, oh, I'm trying to just spitball. Um, think of this. Um, remember Acts chapter 20, Paul said, uh, verse number 27, For I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. He's speaking of New Testament prophets, uh, not that the gift would, wouldn't continue in today's society, but their role is so important here uh, that because it was such a fragile time. This is the establishing of the first church. Things were very fluid as they were going together. And that's why Paul said in Acts chapter 20, verse 27, I've not shunned to clear unto you of all the counsel of God. And then he says, Take heed therefore unto yourselves and all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God which he hath purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after them. Now, Paul is sharing this in Acts chapter 20 with a group of leaders from a certain region connected to a local church. Anybody know which church class he was talking to? Which region? Ephesus. He's speaking directly to the leaders of this church that we're dealing with in Ephesians chapter 4. And he's telling them that there will come a time after he leaves that people would try and sneak in and pervert the teaching that he had shared with them. And he even kind of accuses some of them in verse number 30. He said, of your own selves shall men arise. He said, some of you guys, some of you turkeys are going to uh, turn away from the faith. Now, you're going to be tempted and you're going to lead people astray and lead people in your own path, not the path that's been laid out. So think about in our churches today. That's one of the roles that a pastor must have is the role of the protector when it comes to the doctrine that people are taught. Jesus taught uh, about being the shepherd in first, or uh, Peter said about being a shepherd in First Peter chapter 5, verse 2. And he said, feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof. Uh, that Middle Eastern sheepfold, if you think about uh, that sheepfold that you see an old uh, picture of, maybe from that time period or a model of that time period, instead of a gate, there would be an opening. It would be a circle that wasn't completed, and there would be an opening where the sheep would go in and out, and that shepherd would lay down. He would lay his body down in that opening as the door of the sheepfold. A couple reasons for that. Number one, it was to keep the sheep in. They would have to go past him to get out. All right. So if a, a sheep was going to try and escape, they would have to go through the shepherd. But it also had a dual purpose. It also meant that anything coming in would have to go through the shepherd. And Jesus, in John chapter 10, masterfully explained that he's the door of the sheepfold. He's the door to the sheep. If you're going to get to the sheep, you have to go through the shepherd. And he gave the comparison between the shepherd and the hireling. And he talked about anything going out has to come through him. Anything coming in has to go through him. And that's why Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 4, in verse 2 through 4, he said, Preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all unsuffering doctrine. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust shall they heap themselves teachers, having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth, shall be turned on the fables. A prophet uses the word of God literally as a staff where he can correct, but he can also protect the sheep. He can correct, hey, bro, sis, I love you, but the Bible says this, and I need to kind of help you, help guide you. But the prophet also uses the word of God to protect, hey, we're not going to do that because the Bible is very clear in this area. Um, we had a lady uh, came several years ago, it's been years, um, and she sat through one of our studies on spiritual gifts. And she came up after service and she said, Pastor, I really uh, need to talk to you about this spiritual gift. And it was the gift of tongues. And she said, uh, I personally believe that I can speak in tongues. And I said, sis, called her name. I said, that's totally fine. But I'm going to let you know now, if you do that at church, I will call you out on it. And I will correct you from the platform. Because we believe that that gift has ceased. 
And she was very gracious, and I, I respect her so much for this. She said, Pastor, I don't believe that I should speak at church. I believe this is something that I should do at home. And I promise that I will never do that at church. And she kept her word, and I'm very thankful for that. Uh, but there has to be an established line, and a prophet has to draw that line and say, we will not cross this line because the Word of God is very clear in this area. And certain areas, we, they're deal breakers. We've talked at lunch today. There are some things that are preference and some things that are doctrine. And the difference is, my preference, I don't have a chapter and verse that I can attach. Okay? I like having a beard. My children hate it. All right? Uh, but I cannot find a chapter and a verse that says that it's wrong for me to have a beard. All right? That's a preference. But I can tell you with assurance that salvation is by grace through faith. It's not works that we can do. Why? Because there is a chapter and verse, several verses, 300 verses that deal with salvation by grace through faith. So that is a doctrine. And when it comes down to it, we will go to blows over doctrine. We're not going to go to blows over preference. It's not worth it. It's an opinion. Um, it's, opinions are like armpits. Most people have them, and most of them stink. Okay, So uh, there's a difference in opinion and preference. So we've got apostles, we've got prophets, and then number three, we've got evangelists. The word for evangelist means one who brings good tidings. Uh, someone who heralds salvation, who is not an apostle. This is anyone who shares the good news of Christ. Now, just like the apostolic mission, we have all been called to be an evangelist. We're to share the good news of Christ. We're to bring good tidings uh, from a far country uh, to uh, tell people about Christ. Mark chapter 16, verse 15. Jesus said, Go ye into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature. Uh, the gift of evangelism is still in existence today. And think about one person in particular uh, as I was studying that I know this guy has the gift of evangelism. Uh, one of the signs of uh, the gift of an evangelist, someone who uh, the easiest way to tell if someone has this gift is that when they speak, people come to Christ. People just, it's, it's like, man, that person just got up and said the exact same thing that our pastor said last week, and it's frustrating. Uh, but uh, uh, got up and said the exact same thing, preached the same message, but for some reason, 25 people walked down the aisle and got saved because that person has the gift of evangelism. That person is a biblical evangelist. And we're all called to do that. We're all called to share the good news. Uh, Carl Henry, one of my favorite quotes, and we need to put it on the wall uh, somewhere here around the building, said, the gospel is only good news if it gets there in time. The gospel is only good news if it gets there in time. What good would it do you to share with a family of someone who died of cancer at the funeral home that you have the cure? It's too late. It's too late then. Uh, it's only good news if it gets there in time. And no one produces fruit like someone with the gift of evangelism. It's just in them, and they, it flows out. So you have apostles, prophets, evangelists. Here's number four. The fourth people group is pastors and teachers. Pastors and teachers. There is a, a, a great <clears throat> doctrinal, uh, not dissertation, uh, discussion about is this one role or is this two roles? I think this is one role, just me personally. Uh, just from studying the, pa the passage, I, I think this is one. Paul is trying to say that this is one entity here. Uh, let me give you uh, some uh, quotes here. William McDonald said this, Pastors are men who serve as under-shepherds of the sheep of Christ. They guide and feed the flock. Theirs is a ministry of wise counsel, correction, encouragement, and consolation. Counsel, correction, encouragement, and consolation. I, I can't think of a better illustration than that. Uh, counsel, correction, encouragement, consolation. See, an evangelist may get up and preach a message and then leave to go to another church, but the pastor is called to stay and continue ministering to that church family. Uh, there are requirements, responsibilities of a pastor found in 1 Timothy chapter 3, Titus chapter number 1. Uh, because of the way that Paul lays this out, it would appear that this is a teaching pastor, some, a pastor who 
not only is a shepherd of the flock, but is also teaching simultaneously, has the same role. It might not always be the case, but it seems that that's what he's laying out. Some teachers don't have the heart of being a shepherd, and that's okay, or they don't want the responsibility. But what are some of the expectations of a pastor? And this is going to kind of morph into a little bit of our starting point class, but what are the expectations of a pastor? Uh, number one, a pastor feeds the flock through teaching that's found in the Bible. A pastor feeds the flock through teaching found in the Bible. It, it kind of only makes sense that a pastor would feed the flock with the Word of God. Now that seems to make really good sense. Uh, but you would be surprised to know that many pastors don't do that. Don't do that. Now remember Acts chapter 20 and verse 27, Paul said, I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. Implying that there are some who will pick and choose. That was Paul. But how about today? Are pastors today, statistically, are pastors today still sharing the truths of the word of God? Do they even believe it for themselves? Because you're not going to get up and say something if you don't personally believe it. A survey of 800 pastors last year done by Arizona Christian University gave these details. Only 37% of pastors surveyed, 800 pastors, only 37% of pastors have a biblical worldview. A biblical worldview is a view of the world which seeks to answer life's biggest questions from the teachings of the Bible. Out of 800 pastors... Only 37% of them have a biblical worldview. There's something wrong. When someone gets up and says, I believe that this is what people need, and yet 37% of them, only 37%, believe it for themselves. There's something bad wrong with that. Here's the breakdown, because right, I, I like numbers. Here's the breakdown. Of that 37%, 41% of them were senior pastors. That means that 59% of senior pastors of those surveyed, 800 pastors, don't have a biblical worldview. 28% of associate pastors, that would be Brother John's role. He does, he, and he uh, falls in that category, 28%. Uh, but that means that 72% of those surveyed don't have a biblical worldview. All right, here we go. 13% of teaching pastors. Guys who get up on a regular basis and teach this book, don't believe it. Uh, excuse me, 87%. 13 believe it, 87% don't. 4% of executive pastors have a biblical worldview. 4%. This is astounding. Uh, think about all of these people who get up and say that they love the Lord and they follow His word, yet they don't personally believe that it's worthy of living by. There's a problem there. So the pastor should, should feed the flock through Bible teaching. And, and it just goes to say that a pastor should not only teach it, he should believe it. He should believe it. Um, letter B there, the pastor should pray for the flock. And, and I, I jest in uh, Brother John's class, uh, the prayer should be sincere, not as a passing thought. Our prayer should not be, oh man, I told that, that guy that I was going to pray for him last week. Lord, please bless them. Hey, brother, hey, sister, I prayed for you. It should be more sincere than that. Okay, It should be legit. The pastor should pray for the flock. Uh, number, uh, number next, uh, the pastor should protect the flock. Should protect. I already mentioned this. Um, that's personally, a personal note, I want to know what our classes are teaching. I want to know what our growth groups, what material our growth groups are going through. I want to be involved in the vision and the leadership and the direction and vision. I want to be involved in all that because I feel like there is a responsibility there that I should be. I should be in that setting. It doesn't mean that I have to rubber stamp everything that goes on here, but taking the oversight thereof implies that I should at least know what's going on. Right, uh, But letter D, the pastor should lead the flock. Uh, Hebrews 13, 17, obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves for they watch for your souls as they that must give an account. A pastor has to give an account three times before the Lord. Once for himself, 
once for his family, and once for the church. Three different responsibilities. Standing before the Lord and giving an account. Did you lead well? That's why it's not a job. It's a calling. Because if you're doing this without the calling, you are crazy. Because this is not a job. That's not something we just do. It should be a calling. So there are positions. Why? Number two, a lot of subpoints. Number two, uh, the perfecting. Look at verse number 12. Why did he give these gifts to the local church? <clears throat> For the perfecting of the saints. Perfecting. Now we know that, understand that that word perfect, when we see it in the New Testament, doesn't mean sinless perfection. It means spiritual maturity. So the, for the maturity of the saints. The gifts should equip the saints. The saints should serve in their gifting. And then through that service, the body is built up. Colossians chapter 2 and verse number 7. It says, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith as ye have been taught. So we should be built up through our service in what we have been taught. But we're also being prepared for something. Look back at verse 12. For the perfecting of the saints... For the work of the ministry. The emphasis is on the word for. Why are we being matured? Why are we being perfected? It's for the work of the ministry. Uh, you know, think about many have made the ministry nothing more than just a job, but it's more than that. It's a responsibility. It's not just a responsibility of those who get a paycheck from the church. This is all of us working together. We're all maturing, growing together, serving together. It's encouraging when we have work days or we say, hey, let's get together 30 minutes after church and move tables or move chairs or paint a room or do something. It's encouraging working together because this is a part of what we do. This is the church being the church. We're coming together by love, serving one another, serving with each other. And there's a lot of fulfillment in that. It's a great feeling when we know what our gifts are and we serve through our gifts for the perfecting of the saints. And then we see the priority in verse number 13. What is the point of the ministry if we can't, be all, if we can't all be on the same page? Verse 13. Till we all come in the unity of the faith. The unity. Remember the first church, Acts 2, verse 42 through 44, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship in breaking of bread and in prayers, and fear came upon every soul. Many wonders and signs were done by the apostles, and all that believed were together and had all things common. You have to wonder why fear came upon all the people of Jerusalem. Could it be that what they had been used to seeing at church in the synagogue was backbiting and fighting and grumbling and complaining. And for the very first time, they saw unity. They saw something different that they weren't used to. And it scared them. Fear came upon all the people. When there, there was a, ever heard the statement, a holy hush? When, that, when the church was discussed, it was, oh yeah, we've heard about them. Well, we've heard about that. It was respectful, reverent. Uh, there was a reverence to what was going on, and it all came back to unity. They had all things common. They were all in one accord. They were all united for the same purpose. They had the same goals. They were on the same page. And you think about when a church is unified, and they're all going the same direction, on the same page, for the same purpose, you better watch out. Because that's a force that cannot be stopped. Remember, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. In Matthew chapter 16, when the church gets to the place where we stop arguing over things that are trivial, that aren't going to matter 10 years from now, uh, you know, that is when we might get to see God do a work in the church. When we stop complaining. You know, I'm, I'm all for having convictions and standards uh, as long as they have some kind of scripture connected to them. I am not in favor of us elevating opinion or preference to the same level as doctrine. That's not biblical. Uh, I, I, there were, I saw a video this past week and it, it got me riled. But uh, Remember when <clears throat> several years ago, several, several years ago, uh, there was a big push in churches uh, for all of the preachers not to have facial hair? Now, he had to, be, to be a man of God, he had to be clean shaven. You know, I sure am glad that Jesus was clean shaven. Now, 
God probably couldn't have used him otherwise. I, I'm no. Uh, but what is our purpose and priority? Our purpose and priority is to be unified in the knowledge of the Son of God. Because if we fall in love with Jesus, hey, our convictions and standards will not be a problem. I asked a preacher friend of mine several years ago, how do you preach on standards? How do you? And I gave, listed a few things, and he said, I don't. And I'm, you know, I'm a young preacher. I'm in Bible college. I'm like, well, how, do you not, how do you get around some of that stuff? And he said this. He said, Heath, I preach and show people how to fall in love with Jesus, and the Lord works everything out. That's true. Uh, love Jesus, love others. Uh, teach and show people how to love Jesus and live out that love to other people, and God does the rest. It's amazing. Uh, so, number four, we see the pieces. Paul talks about the contrast, and this is the last point uh, here under the gifts of the church. He wanted the church to grow up and mature because the alternative is they're full of spiritual babies. He talked to the church of Corinth about that. Remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1 through 3, he said, I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as unto babes in Christ. He said, I'd love to talk to you like you're grown up. I would love to have an adult conversation with you, but I can't because you couldn't handle it. You couldn't handle the deep things of the faith. I couldn't share those deep doctrinal truths with you because you are not able to receive it. Now, he was hoping for them to have unity, to have, have that uh, knowledge together and be growing, but because of their immaturity, he couldn't share everything he wanted to. And think about today, children are easy to be led. You give them a cupcake. And they'll do about anything. Hey, you can have this cupcake if you stand on your head. Man, they'll do their best to make it happen just for a cupcake. Why? Because they're children. If you ask an adult, hey, you want a cupcake? What do I have to do to get it? You got to stand on your head. Oh, I don't want a cupcake that bad. <laughs> you know? Uh, hey, you got to run around in church. Uh, I, no, I'm, I'm not going to make a fool of myself. I mean, come on. Uh, you start going down the list, there's a lot of questions involved. Because, why? Because there's a maturity that's missing from that child. A child just, okay, you know, I, I love Madeline. Madeline just, hey, Bastie! I mean, just get that arm going, you know, everything. I love it. It's awesome, all right? Uh, I hope she's doing that when she does that when she's 17. That'll be awesome, okay? And uh, we'll shoot for that. Uh, but you think about there's a maturity difference. From an adult to a child. And Paul is saying, I would love for you to be spiritually mature, but you're not there. But when we look at verse 14, he says that we henceforth be no more children. Why are we searching for our spiritual gift? Why are we trying to find out what it is and serving out of it? So that we can grow up. So that we can have some maturity. So that we can exercise that spiritual gift. And when you exercise something, it gets stronger by default. It gets stronger. Henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine. When I'm growing and I'm maturing, I'm not as easily swayed. Carried about, I am not carried about with every wind of doctrine. I'm not following the latest fad or the latest thing that comes along and, and grabs my attention. It's not flashy and uh, gets my, catches my eye. By the slight of men, cunning craftiness, whereby they lie and wait to deceive. But speaking the truth in love may grow up into him. We're growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior. Knowledge of Him. And grow up into Him in all things, which is the head, even Christ. Here it is, verse 16. From whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth. The goal is that we would all work in sync together. That's the purpose. We have spiritual gifts so that we can be mature in our faith. Where we're not driven by everything that comes along. And that we work together in total harmony and unity. That's the purpose of spiritual gifts. That's why God has given them to us. So we think about spiritual gifts. As we become more like Christ, we have stability in our lives. That produces truth that's joined with love. Someone said, truth without love is brutality, but love without truth is hypocrisy. Love, truth without love is brutality, but love without truth is hypocrisy. It's not my design. It's not your design. It's his design. And we're to grow into 
his design. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 18. But now hath God set the members, every one of them in the body, as it hath pleased you? No. Me? No. The staff? No. As it has pleased him. Him. This is his body. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Uh, so, uh, the spiritual gifts. Last thing tonight. Let's talk uh, tonight and close up. Uh, we've got about 20 minutes here. Uh, let's talk about sign gifts. Uh, let, what about the sign gifts? Uh, why do we not talk about them, give them credit? Are they still being used today? Why don't we emphasize them? And uh, I want to just point back to a series uh, from 2017, and this is just a, a snippet of that study. Um, we spent 127 different messages uh, in the book of 1 Corinthians uh, back in 2016 and 17. And uh, some of these things are from that series. And so if there's six messages on chapter 14 alone in the spiritual gift of tongues. Uh, so they're all on the website. If you want to listen to them, they're all on the website. Um, but I want to focus tonight just on the common sense aspect to the gift, behind the gift. Uh, we know that tongues was a sign gift given to the apostles of the first church. We know that it was exercised in the book of Acts to draw people. But I want to draw our attention to a few truths about that gift. All right, so here's a couple highlights, and then we'll jump into, uh, if you want to turn there, 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 14 is the text where we'll be. The gift of tongues, if you look, if you did a, a study or a search, a uh, word search um, online, and you just typed in the word tongues, uh, you'll get about eight different books of the Bible that'll pop up. Uh, in the New Testament, we see the gift of tongues is mentioned in the book of Acts. Uh, when we talk about the first church and the formation, the apostles used the gift of tongues, first couple chapters of Acts. You see it mentioned once or twice in the book of Romans, the word tongues, but it's not talking about the gift of tongues. You see it mentioned in the book of 1 Corinthians, which we're going to deal with tonight. You see it mentioned in the book of Revelation, but it's talking about different people groups, different tribes and tongues, literally people who will be around the throne of God. The only time it's mentioned with this context in the entire New Testament outside of the book of Acts is the book of 1 Corinthians. It is not mentioned in any other book of the Bible. All right? Why is that? We'll talk about that in just a minute. Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, the book of 1 Corinthians, in around 50, 55 to 56 A.D. Okay, so this is 20 years plus after Jesus' death. He writes the book of 1 Corinthians. Paul wrote nine, depending on uh, how many, which commentator or which your opinion is. I personally believe that Paul wrote 14 books of the New Testament. That's just my personal take. Uh, but let's just say 13 because we know for a fact he wrote at least 13 books of the New Testament. Out of all of those books, in sequential order, number, uh, 1 Corinthians was number 4. Well, it's the fourth book of the New Testament that he penned. He wrote nine after this book of the Bible. Nine different books. He never mentioned the gift of tongues in any of those nine books after 1 Corinthians. Now, think about this. All right? I, I want you just to kind of put your common sense cap on just for a moment. Paul wrote specifically to the first church. He's writing to these up-and-coming churches on how we should survive and how we should uh, literally carry out our mission. If the gift of tongues, asked a couple questions, if the gift of tongues is so important, why did Paul not mention it in those next nine books? That's a question to think about. He wrote 13 books. And the only church he wrote to was the church of Corinth. All right? the, one of the things about the church of Corinth is they were spiritually immature. Okay, So why then did he talk about tongues to a church that was really spiritual babies? That's another thing. He wrote three books of the Bible to two preacher boys that he had mentored. First and second Timothy and Titus. He specifically talked to them about how to lead churches and how to pastor well. All right, Preach the word, instant in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort. Not one time did he mention the gift of tongues. Not once. 
to me, it would make sense that if he's talking to these guys about how to lead well and how to get people to exercise their faith and how to carry out the mission of God, and tongues was supposed to be a part of that, it would make sense that he would explain to them how they should deal with this gift, but not once. So out of all those things, I personally believe that the spiritual gift of tongues has come to an end. And I'm going to show you why in just a minute. But I believe that it's come to an end. And I believe in something called the cessation of gifts, which means the ceasing, the coming to an end of gifts. Paul talks about tongues in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, specifically those three chapters. And right in the middle, he talks about the gift of tongues coming to an end in chapter 13, verse number 8 through 10. He talks about charity, and we know charity uh, is not a person. (laughs) Charity is uh, the word that he used for love. Okay, So when he gets to chapter 13, verse 8, he says, Charity, love never fails, but whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. You know, Some guys would get up and they would share uh, prophecy, and it wouldn't be a true prophet. It wouldn't be something that would be carried out. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. People will forget. Verse 9, for we know in part and we prophesy in part. But then that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part shall be done away. All kinds of questions. Uh, Pastor, what did Jesus or what did Paul mean when he said that which is perfect has come? All kinds of questions, all right? Uh, Is he talking about Jesus? All right, the people who believe in the continuation of gifts believe that then that which is perfect has come is talking about Jesus, all right? And and it kind of makes sense. But I believe that it's talking about the Bible. What did they not have completed in 1 Corinthians 13? They didn't have the completed canon of Scripture. I believe personally, and we, and we can disagree. I mean, this is, this is up for debate. But we think about why is he saying that tongues are going to cease? What was the purpose of tongues? It was to point people to God. What do we have today that points people to God? His Word. It makes sense. This is perfect and complete. It's inerrant, infallible. It cannot be dissected. It cannot be misproved. This is complete. That which is perfect is come. Then that which is in part, sign gifts, will be done away. Why do people speak in tongues if the purpose is to draw people to Christ? We have something that draws people to Christ. We don't need the gift of tongues. We, we, it's no longer necessary. Now, the Corinthians spoke Greek. In Europe today, there are at least 10 major languages that are spoken. You've got Danish and Dutch and English and German and Swedish and French and Italian and Portuguese and Romanian and Spanish. But what is the main reason for speaking in tongues? Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse 22. Wherefore, tongues are for a sign, not to them that believe, but to them that believe not. The purpose of tongues wasn't so that people would see how spiritual we are. But the purpose of tongues was to draw people to Christ. Remember uh, in Acts chapter number 1 and 2 when Peter spoke and Pentecost, they have Pentecost comes and uh, they're filled with the Holy Spirit and uh, they begin speaking in tongues. It wasn't some unheard language of, man, this is angel speak. And we don't, nobody understands what it is. What, What did they say about the gift? Hey, how are all these people Jews, and yet all of these people from different nationalities can understand what they're saying? It wasn't a gift for the speaker. It was a gift primarily directed at the hearer. I can understand what that person is saying. Now, I would love to be able to just spit out in English and you understand in Spanish. But that's not going to happen. You know, uh, the gift of tongues, at least my understanding, has come to an end. But let's just assume tonight, for sake of argument, that it's still an active gift to the church. All right, let's just assume for the next few minutes, uh, we'll just, for sake of argument, it's still an active gift to the church. What are the rules? Because if you're going to exercise the gift, you get to chapter 14, it's all about the rules. These things have to be followed. And I'm going to ask you just in your personal, please don't raise your hand or blurt out. 
but just in your own personal observation, if you've ever seen a service or been in a service when someone starts speaking in tongues, I'm going to ask you just to kind of personalize your experience and see if these rules have been followed. And these are right from 1 Corinthians 14. Uh, what are the rules? Number one, the lost. The lost. Verse 22. Uh, in verse 5, uh, Paul validates the gift. Uh, if he validates the importance, but not the superiority of the gift. To speak the truths of God's word is better than speaking in tongues. He said, verse 5, I would that ye all spake with tongues, but rather that ye prophesied. He said, hey, it'd be awesome if you could all speak in tongues, but even more important than that is that you all could share the word of God with clarity. That is primary. You don't reach a greater spiritual plane by speaking in tongues over speaking the Bible. Which is more reasonable? Which is more effective? That I can say, man, I can impress people by speaking in tongues. Or that I can rightly divide the scripture. Which one is more important? And Paul's saying, they're not even on the same playing field. He said it's more important that you would prophesy, that you would be able to share the truths of the Word of God. He's telling them that there has to be, for the spiritual gift of tongues to be exercised, there must be lost people present. That is the purpose, to draw people to Christ. Now, here's the easy question. Are there lost people present in churches today? Oh, absolutely. So you could, by and large, most any given Sunday, you could say, well, we've, we've checked that one off. Okay, all right. Number two, what are the limits? What are the limits? Look at verse number 23. We see a schedule, a schedule. Um, John, you got your uh, order of service with you? Let me see it for just a second. All right. Thanks, sir. All right, uh, the schedule. When we come to church, we have a plan. And I, I'm not saying we have a plan, but um, during the week, uh, Pastor Tim, Pastor John, will will talk about our plan. We call it an OOS, all right, an OOS. Uh, but uh, this is an order of service, the OOS. And we ask, hey, you got the OOS? We need to look at the OOS. Uh, we spend time each week looking at our order of service. We walk through our order of service with our uh, team, with our music team, and make sure that everybody's on the same page. Everybody knows what's going on. We know what songs we're doing. We know uh, who's making announcements. We know what we're announcing. Because if you don't have some kind of a plan, you have chaos. And nobody likes chaos. Okay? Uh, so we like having a schedule. We like having something. Uh, that does not mean that our plan overrides God's plan. Our plan comes secondary. When God shows up, our plan gets tossed in the trash can. Right? Uh, but we do have a plan. Who will do what? All those different things. Uh, but what would that service look like if we didn't have a plan? It looked kind of confusing. Uh, look at verse number 23. If therefore the whole church be come together into one place and all speak with tongues, and there come in those that are unlearned or unbelievers, will they not say that you're mad? Hey, if everybody came with the same agenda and hey, I'm going to speak in tongues, in tongues today. I'm going to do this because I feel led of the Lord to do it. I'm, but what if everybody came and somebody came in who was lost and everybody's speaking in tongues, they're going to run for the back doors thinking, man, those people are crazy. We don't know what's going on. Verse 24. But if all prophesy, there come in one that believeth not, or unlearned, he's convinced of all, he's judged of all. If everybody is sharing the word of God, they're convicted. They're not running for the door. They're thinking, man, something's being shared. I don't feel right. Something, is, something inside me is telling me that there's something that I need to do. It draws con conviction. And thus are the secrets of his heart made manifest. And so falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is in you of a truth. Verse 26. How is it then, brethren, when you come together, every one of you hath a psalm, hath a doctrine, hath a tongue, hath a revelation, hath an interpretation. Let all things be done unto edifying. Everything we do should be about building up people. Not so that I get exactly what I want. Uh, see, I don't want a church of clones. I would much rather see a church full of individual pieces working together in total harmony. Uh, let's just be honest. I don't, I don't think that you guys would want more than one of me. 
running around the church. And before we all say, yeah, Pastor, I'm not sure that we all want one of you or more than one of you running around the church either. Because one is enough of all of us. And that's the way God has this designed. He has each individual piece all working together in harmony. That is his purpose and plan. But when we come to church, there has to be some kind of an order. There has to be some kind of a structure. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 31. Paul says to this exact same church, whether therefore ye eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. Everything we do should be connected to staying in unity. It is not about what's best for me. It is not about what's best for you. It is always about what's best for Crossroads. Now, let's think about that. That means that there are certain elements of what we do that you and I might not say, hey, I would do it that way if I was in charge. Uh, there are certain things that we do every single Sunday morning, and all of us have different preferences, but we have to think what is best for Crossroads? Uh, what is best for the entirety of the church? Man, it'd be easy to just throw up a big old band up there on Sunday mornings and have every instrument in the world. Some of us would sit back and say, man, that would be awesome. Some of us would be ticked off. Let's just be transparent and truthful. This is growth groups. No, this is a family. All right. Uh, some of us would be offended. So it really comes back to what is best for Crossroads. How do we hold hands with everyone and still be in unity? How do we honor the Lord and still be united together? We have to say, is that really worth dying for? A uh, great book read years ago, one of the chapters was, Not Every Hill is Worth Dying On. And it's true. There are some things that are worth fighting for and some things that just aren't worth it. All right? So their pride was in the way of the service. It had to be planned. There had to be a structure. Number two, we see single, single, the single. Verse 27, all these things coming out of chapter 14. If any man speak in an unknown tongue, let it be by two or at the most by three, and that by course, and let one interpret. Here's the rule. If there is going to be speaking in tongues, there must be one interpreter. One. Designated to interpret. That is their role. Um, I have seen uh, a church service where a pastor will ask for an interpreter to come from the crowd. I believe that's biblical. Hey, what do you think that person said? What do you think that person meant? That's up to interpretation of that individual for that particular moment. But one person is supposed to be delegated to interpret. Number one. And I've, I've never seen a church, personally, I've never seen a church service where someone, one person was designated to interpret. That's just me personally. Maybe you have. I just personally haven't. Uh, single. Uh, number three. Silence. Silence, verse 28 and 29. But if there be no interpreter, here it is, let him keep silence in the church. If there is not an interpreter present, that person who may say and argue, I've got the spiritual gift of tongues, pastor. If there is not an interpreter, that person is to remain silent. That's what the Bible says. In verse number 29, uh, let the prophet speak two or three and let the other judge. If someone has a word from God, Hey, I, I've got this Bible verse. Some, God's uh, shared this with me this week. He showed me this in my devotions. Absolutely, share it. But when we talk about spiritual gifts, speaking in tongues, if there's not an interpreter, silence. Silence. Uh, then we go back to uh, main point number three, the light bulb. The light bulb. There were some of the rules. Uh, the light bulb. Look at verse 30. It says, And if anything be revealed to another that sitteth by, let the first hold his peace. When there are multiple speakers present, the first had to give way to the second. This is all based on sharing the truths of God's word. Okay, No one preacher had the final say. There was not one uh, speaker in the church that was the only representative to speak in the church. Others could share the word of God, and that's totally fine and allowed. But how, should it, how was it verified? With other scripture. Verse 30 through 32. All right, And the spirits of the prophets, verse 32, are subject to the prophets. It had to be validated. Hey, can that 
what that brother just said, what that sister just shared, can that be validated, verified by the Word of God? Scripture interpreting Scripture. Yes, then it's valid. Uh, number four, the leader. The leader. For God is not the author of confusion. Remember, this is the church of spiritual babies. This is the church that struggled, and you have God as the leader. So here's the question. The word confusion means instability or a state of disorder. Instability or a state of disorder. They did not have a peaceful solution, so the reasonable answer was silence. They needed to get out of the way and let God do a work. So the leader. Verse uh, number 5, verse 34 and 35, we see the leadership. All right, I could get so many trouble here. Uh, verse 34, let your women keep silence in the churches. <laughs> I didn't say it. Paul did. Uh, for it is not permitted. Now remember, we're still in context of spiritual gifts, tongues. It is not permitted unto them to speak. Whoa. You know, the majority of the speaking in tongues that takes place in churches is done by women. And sadly, that's not biblical. It says, let your women keep silence in the churches. Verse 35, if they will learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home. For it is a shame for women to speak in the church. Now, we've seen this scripture manipulated, twisted, to where people say, well, you know, women shouldn't teach a class. They shouldn't lead a Sunday school. They shouldn't speak in the church. They shouldn't uh, be on the platform and serve. All that. This is talking about speaking in tongues. Period. That's the context. And we interpret Scripture with Scripture. Uh, we say, well, if that's the case and women can't speak, then what's the point of the verse that says, let the elder women teach the younger women? That can take place at church. So we talk about the leadership. It was the men's responsibility. They were allowed to speak in tongues, not the women. Uh, number six, the laziness. Look at verse 36. What came the word of God out from you? Came it unto you only. If any man think himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things that I write unto you are commandments of the Lord. But if any man be ignorant, let him be ignorant. We don't have the market cornered on spirituality. There are some people that know spiritual truths, but this church is acting like they were the only church in town that had God's word. And then we see the last mentioned in verse 39 and 40. Wherefore, brethren, covet to prophesy, forbid not to speak with tongues. He said, hey, you should covet. You should desire to prophesy. In the end of chapter number 12, he says, covet the best gifts. What's the best gift? To be consumed with love. Chapter 13, verse 1. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels that have not charity, I become a sounding brass and tinkling cymbal. And he said, the greatest gift that you could have is to love one another. At the end of chapter 13. Uh, now abideth faith, hope, charity. These three, the greatest of these is charity. That's the greatest gift that man could have, to love. But the focus is one word in verse 40, and that's where we finish tonight. Let all things be done decently and in order. When we follow God's plan for order, there's blessing attached to obedience. So if obedience equals blessing, it could be said that if there's no blessing, then that doesn't mean that there is obedience. If God is blessing it, that means that people are being obedient. If God is not blessing it, could it be that there's no obedience? We see, remember we said, chapter 12, verse 31, but covet earnestly the best gifts, yet show I unto you a more excellent way. 13, verse 13, now abide faith, hope, charity, these three, but the greatest of these is charity. If you don't have love for Christ, it's all a show. And if you don't have love for others, it's all for self. If you don't have love for Christ, it's all for show. And if you don't have love for others, it's all for self. It's all about me. So when we talk about spiritual gifts, we are the church. We are the church on full display. I have a dear preacher friend in Georgia who pastors Crossroads Baptist Church in Georgia. And he said this. If someone asks you where Crossroads Baptist Church is today, look them right in the eyes and tell them with full biblical confidence, you're looking at it. If someone were to ask you, where's Crossroads Baptist Church? You look at them and say, you're looking at it. 
Because we are the church. We're the church. And we're to be living out our spiritual gifts. When we function from our spiritual gifts, we see the church on full display as God created it to be. As you mentioned in the end of Ephesians chapter 4, a body fitly joined together and reaching its maximum potential. The church working together in unity, growing together, serving together, and exercising our gifts together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love. Thank you for uh, the truths of your word. Lord, I ask that you would please help us to search out your truth for us. Help us to exercise the gifts that you have given to us. Uh, Lord, help us to know what our spiritual gift is. Help us to serve out of that spiritual gift. And Lord, I ask that you please help us to grow and mature and be built on you. Lord, we love you and thank you for who you are and what you called us to do. In Jesus' name, amen.